The Old Testament reading for today comes from Psalm 148. Let's go now to the reading of God's holy word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Praise them. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He is commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills and all peoples, excuse me, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people, praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. There we read John say, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, excuse me, brothers and sisters, and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then, John said, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So far, the reading of God's word, we pray blessing upon the explanation of the text and our application of it as well. Brothers and sisters, the thing that differentiates the people of God from those who are of the world, is that those who belong to God worship God, whereas those who belong to the world worship the things of this world. It's important for us to recognize that all people worship. Even the most devout of atheists worships. Uh, The atheist, uh, though he may deny the existence of God with his mouth, he has a God 
of his own. Someone or something owns his heart. He lives for something. He finds his ultimate pleasure and satisfaction somewhere. He has some source of hope that keeps him going. And so even the atheist worships as he looks to this thing or that, saying, this thing is of ultimate worth to me. Uh, And so the question really is not, uh, do we worship? For all worship, no one can avoid it. Instead, the question is, do we worship aright? Do we worship that which is truly worthy of worship? And do we worship that one aright? That is the question we must ask of ourselves. Um, You've noticed, I'm sure, uh, that the book of Revelation is, is all about worship. Uh, when, we begin, uh, when we began this study over a year ago, it's been a year already, did you realize that, uh, that we've been in this book, uh, you probably uh, assumed that the book was all about the future, right? Uh, that is what most think. This book, the book of Revelation, the one we find at the very end of the canon of Scripture, is all about uh, the future, But what we have found is that the book is really about worship. It reveals what it reveals in order to urge the reader to worship aright, to worship not the things of this world, but to worship God who made the world and the Christ who is the God-man and also our Redeemer. And so really those are our two options then. Either we worship the things of this world or we worship the God who made the world and all things therein. That we worship is unavoidable. To worship is to be human. To be human is to worship. The question is, will we rightly worship our Creator, or will we wrongly give worship to something that is a part of His creation? Uh, One way for us, I think, to talk about the fall of man and the entrance of sin into the world is to describe it as worship gone wrong. I think that is really what happened there in the garden when Adam did first sin. The first sin, and indeed all sin after that, can be described as worship that is misdirected or worship that is all bent out of shape. Uh, To sin is to transgress God's holy law. And what is the summary of God's holy law except to, first of all, love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love God our neighbor as ourself. And so every sin that we commit is committed because we have in some way failed to love God supremely and as we should. We have looked to some other thing in God's creation, usually ourselves, and we have loved it more than we love God. Uh, To sin, therefore, is to fail in worship. It is to worship wrongly to direct it to the wrong thing or to worship in a way that God has not ordained. And so we see this in the world constantly. Some worship their possessions. Some worship their entertainment. Some worship their food. Others worship their drink. Some worship other people and the relationships that they have with them. Some worship sex. Some worship money, power, and fame. Some within this world worship demons, and others worship gods that they have made for themselves, that is, either gods that are carved out of wood and stone, or ideas about God that come not from God, but from themselves, based upon not divine revelation, but upon human reason. And so we see that idolatry 
is all around us. People do worship not aright, but wrongly. Those who belong to God worship God as He has revealed Himself to us in history, through His Son, and by His Word. This is what it means to be gods. This is what it means to worship God properly. We worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us in history, through His Son, and by His Word. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. What is the concept being communicated here in the opening verses of the letter to the Hebrews except this, that we worship a God who has spoken to us. He has revealed Himself to us so that we might approach Him aright, so that we might worship Him aright. It is the wholehearted and faithful worship of this God, the God who has revealed Himself to us, that the book of Revelation is urging. We are to worship this God, the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the God who speaks. He has given us His word. He has graciously disclosed Himself to us. We are to worship this God. He is the one true God. And we are to come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, who, because of our sin and our alienation from God, has been graciously given as the only mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what do you worship? What do you worship? It? And, or whom do you worship? To whom or what do you look to and say, that is of ultimate worth and is worthy of my devotion, my trust, my heart, indeed, uh, my very life? And so I want you to notice three things about Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. We will find that this passage is all about worship. It's urging the proper worship of God. Uh, Notice, first of all, how we are seven times in this passage urged to give worship to God. It is the refrain that is repeated throughout this text. Uh, The word hallelujah appears four times in this passage. In verse 1, a great multitude in heaven is heard by John crying out, and what are they saying? They are saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In verse 3, they cry out again, saying, Hallelujah! In verse 4, it is the 24 elders and the four living creatures who fall down and worship God who was seated on the throne, and they are saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And in verse 6, John again hears the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And what are they crying out? But they are saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The word Hallelujah here is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew compound word, which means praise Yahweh. Uh, To put it in English, it means praise the Lord. That is what hallelujah means, praise the Lord. And so when you say the word hallelujah, you're in fact speaking Hebrew. Uh, You're urging the praise of Yahweh. You are saying praise the Lord. Uh, That is what the word hallelujah means. I think it was appropriate for us to read Psalm 148, at the beginning of this sermon, for the very first and the very last words of that psalm are in Hebrew, hallelujah. And the, the thought that is repeated, the, the, the refrain that is repeated throughout that psalm is, praise the Lord. You heard it, you cannot miss it, but there is just this constant appeal uh, from the psalmist saying to the creation itself and also to 
to, to God's people and, and to, to, to those who have been created by God. Praise the Lord. It is only right that you do. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. What is the basis then for this appeal from the psalmist? Why are all of these things to give glory to God? Why are they to praise God? Well, simply this. God commanded and they were created. God's creatures, God's creation is to give praise and glory to God. It is only right. And Psalm 148 and Revelation 19, 1 through 10 then share this in common. Both are urging the praise of Yahweh using the word hallelujah. The praise of God is also urged in Revelation 19, 5, where we read this, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Also, we should consider verse 7, where the multitude says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. And then, seventhly and lastly, in verse 10, we read John's words, Then I fell down at His, that is, at the angel's feet, to worship Him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then what is the command that is given? Worship God. Give God the worship, John. And so it is important to see then that the objective of this passage from beginning to end is to urge the worship of the one true God who is Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, Lord Most High. And do you see how easy it is for our worship to be misdirected? Even John the Apostle, as he is receiving this vision, and perhaps he is overwhelmed with the glory of it, do you see how even John began to do something that was very wrong, and being overwhelmed with the glory of this vision, he began to bow down, not to God, but before who? Uh, before the angel who was delivering this vision uh, to him. And he did bring upon himself a, a very swift and firm rebuke. You must not do that, the angel says to John. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, the angel says. And so you see that God is the only one who is worthy to receive worship. Nothing in all of creation, not even Holy and righteous angels are worthy to receive our praise. Why? Because they are creatures and they are not the Creator. Angels and men, though a different species, do share much in common. Both are volitional creatures. They have a will. They are able to make decisions. And what were they made for except for the service of God? So angels and men, though certainly different, share this in common. They are volitional creatures made for the service of God, but not even they, holy as they may be, are to be worshipped by God, worshipped by us, but, but only God is to be worshipped. So the distinction is not between things holy and sinful, nor is the distinction between things spiritual and physical, but the distinction is between creator and creature that is useful in determining who is worthy to receive worship. It is the creator only who is worthy to receive worship from His creation. He is the only one whom we are to bow down to or before. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And so, if you are alive today, the truth of the matter is that you owe God worship. Why? Because He is your Maker. You owe God worship because He is your Creator. You are His creation. And to refrain from giving God the worship He so rightly deserves, and and worse yet, to take the worship that He rightly deserves and to give it to another is a most terrible thing. It's a most terrible thing. I'm sitting here and I'm writing the sermon. I'm thinking to myself, I can't even find the words to describe how terrible it is to think of a creature of, of God not giving their maker the glory that he so rightly deserves. I, I do have a hard time finding the words to describe it. The, the comparison that comes to mind is that of a child who, having been brought into this world by his parents, and having been nurtured by them, having been sheltered and clothed and fed and loved and disciplined and protected. Are you picturing this? A child brought into the world and truly loved by his parents. Can you imagine this one then going on only to show dishonor to them? He cares little about them. When he does speak to them, he only speaks rudely. Or he calls only when he wants something from them. His love he will not give to them, but he will gladly give it to those who are unworthy of his love. He responds to his parents' love with hatred, but those who have no true love for him at all, those he loves. And so you can picture a situation like this. Maybe you know of one. Maybe you've experienced this. Uh, The son, having been shown love, responds by spitting in his parents' face, if you will. And there are hardly words to describe just how terrible that sort of situation would be. But it is far worse, it is infinitely worse, for a creature to do this to the Creator. And yet this is what all men do in their natural state and apart from the saving grace of God. This is what we do by nature. We, they in one way or another, spit in the face of their Creator. They repay His goodness with hatred, His kindness with contempt, His faithfulness with faithlessness, His patience with stubborn pride. This is our natural condition apart from the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Friends, if you are a worshiper of God today, you should remember, we should remember and not forget that uh, this is how you and I once were. But God has been merciful to us. He determined from before the creation to bring us to Himself. And though we were by nature children of wrath, He has made us beloved sons and daughters. Uh, This He did through the shed blood of Christ who paid for our sins, for the sins of His people. This He did by calling us to faith by His Word and by His Spirit. When God's Word called us to trust in Jesus, when God's Word called us to 
to, to give Him praise, saying, Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. We responded to that call with a yes and an amen, not because we were by nature one who were worshipers of God, but because God has been gracious to us. God has been gracious to us. Seven times in this passage we are urged to give worship to God, and it is those who were predestined, those called, those justified, who have, do, and will respond to that, that, that call, that, that pleading with a yes and an amen. Uh, secondly, notice how this passage stands in contrast to the preceding one that we have just considered in the book of Revelation. The whole thing is urging us to give worship to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Here we are being commanded to do this very thing. Uh, but notice also how this passage stands in contrast to the preceding one. In chapter 18, you'll remember, uh, we, we, we saw a vision of a response to the destruction of Babylon. But there the perspective was earthly and it was upon those who were of the earth. In chapter 19 we also encounter here in the first 10 verses a vision of of a response that is given to the destruction of Babylon. But the two reactions that we see could not be Uh, more different. They could not contrast more. Remember the way that the earth dwellers responded in chapter 18. What did they do when they saw the destruction of Babylon, that harlot that did seduce the world and keep the world in bondage? What did the earth dwellers do? What did the kings of the earth, those who belonged to the world, do when Babylon was destroyed? They threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned and they cried aloud, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. These people who belonged to the earth, who were worldly and who worshipped the things of this world, when this world was judged in the vision here of chapter 18, they were undone. They were undone. They began to mourn so deeply and from the heart. Why? Because their treasure was now gone. Uh, But even in chapter 18, we heard a call for a different response. Chapter 18, verse 20, we read these words. Here is how they are responding, the earth dwellers. But here is the call. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given you, has given judgment for you against her. So here is this ungodly and worldly response being described. But even in the midst of it, there is a voice crying out saying, Heaven, you are to respond differently. You are to rejoice over her judgment. Uh, this is true of heaven and all of God's saints and apostles and prophets. And this is precisely what we see in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19. This call of 1820 is heard and is obeyed. Here, heaven responds to the call of 1820 and rejoices. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud of a the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. And what are they saying? Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so heaven rejoices at the judgment of Babylon. The two responses to the judgment of Babylon could not be more different Uh, But this only further shows how different the kingdom of God is 
from the kingdoms of this world. These two kingdoms stand in stark contrast to one another. The citizens of these kingdoms value entirely different things, so that what causes one to weep and mourn causes the other to shout for joy and to give glory to God. What is revealed here then in the contrast between chapter 18 and the first 10 verses of chapter 19 are the hearts of men. The hearts of men are here revealed and laid bare by the way that they respond to the judgment of that harlot Babylon. Those who are of the world, who worship the things of this world, weep and mourn at the destruction of this world. But those who belong to God and are members of His kingdom, who worship God alone, they cannot help but rejoice at the sight of this thing. Babylon will be destroyed, friends. And if this is where your treasure is, you will be found weeping in the end. But the kingdom of heaven is eternal. God is everlasting and He is unchanging. If your treasure is stored up there and with Him, in the end there will be only rejoicing for you. Thirdly, notice the reasons given for the worship of God in this text. They are spattered throughout these ten verses. Verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For, and so a reason is given for the worship of God. For, His judgments are true and just. For, He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And so we see that in the end, God will be worshipped for the glory of His judgments. His judgments will be awesome. They will be glorious and they will be perfectly just. And so here we see that this is one of the reasons why men are urged to give glory to God for the glory of His judgments, His judgments that are perfect and right and true. In verse 6 we read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunders, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so, in the end, God will also be worshipped for the glory of the salvation that he has provided for his people. And so, these two things, these corresponding things, will in the end prompt the worship of God from His people, the glory and splendor of His judgments that are perfectly right and true, and also the glory and splendor of the great salvation that He has provided for His people. Here, this is all described in the language of a wedding. And here we see that the time has come now, at the end of time, when Christ does return to judge the world and to save His people, there will be a kind of wedding, a marriage that takes place between His bride and He the bridegroom. The bride of Christ is the church. The bride of Christ is the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul, when he goes to instruct husbands in terms of the love that they are to show to their wives, what does he do but compare it to the relationship that does exist between Jesus, the Christ, and His bride, the church? Husbands, you are to be like Christ to your, to your wife. You are to love her as Christ has loved the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ shed His blood, not for the world, but for His church. He atoned for her sins. He gave Himself up for her. That is what Ephesians 5.25-32 says. He died for His bride, that is to say, all of the elect, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did Christ come then? Why did He live and why did He shed His blood? It is so that He might make His bride ready, so that He might purify her, so that He might present her to Himself at the end of time in radiance and in purity. That is why He came. He came to redeem those given to Him, those betrothed to Him by the Heavenly Father. Here in Revelation chapter 19, we have symbolized the consummation of these things, where Christ and His bride do enjoy finally their wedding feast. When will this happen? It will happen at the end of time, when the Lord returns for His betrothed and also judges all of her and His enemies. I want you to remember the way that Paul spoke when he wrote to the church in Corinth. He spoke in this way to them concerning His ministry to them. He said, I, Paul, I feel a divine jealousy for you. I feel jealous over you with a a godly and righteous kind of jealousy. I, 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 I want you to belong to me as brothers and sisters in Christ, but more than that, I want you to belong to Christ and faithfully so. I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul says to the church in Corinth, since I betrothed you to one husband. That is what he says. In my ministry in the preaching of the gospel, in my caring for you and ministering the word of God to you in an ongoing fashion, what was I doing? I I betrothed you to someone. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That is what he says. This is the way that here Paul describes his entire ministry. The preaching of the gospel, the teaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, the planting of churches, the appointment of elders and deacons, all that Paul did in his earthly ministry as an apostle and as a great missionary. How does he communicate it here? He says, this is my ministry, to betroth people to Christ and then to minister to them in such a way so that at the end of time they might be presented to Christ as a pure virgin. That is what he says. And so this concept permeates all of Scripture, it permeates the New Testament, but here it is brought to the forefront here in Revelation chapter 19, where we do have a glimpse of of the marriage supper of the Lamb on that day when the people of God are finally joined to Christ in that consummate sense. They have been betrothed to Him, but here we have the, the marriage supper of the Lamb 
uh, described to us. Uh, Notice that two different perspectives are presented side by side concerning the church's preparation to meet Christ. On the one hand, our responsibility in the matter is emphasized, and on the other hand, God's sovereignty over this and His work is emphasized. First, we are told at the end of verse 7 that the bride has made herself ready. Do you see it there at the end of verse 7? The bride has made herself ready. Indeed, this phrase emphasizes the responsibility that we have to persevere in the faith, to contribute to our sanctification, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Do you hear it there in the language at the end of verse 7? We're to rejoice, we're to give God glory, because here the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And indeed, that phrase agrees with much of what has been said in the book of Revelation up to this point, where we are urged again and again to overcome, to persevere, to press on in Christ until the very end, to be conquerors in Christ Jesus. Here we are urged to make ourselves ready, are we not? As ones who have been betrothed to Christ, who are awaiting that wedding day at the consummation of all things, we are to make ourselves ready. And just as a bride, I think you can all picture this, you know, uh, how much effort does a bride make to make herself ready on her wedding day? It's months in the coming, isn't it? Some of you are preparing even now for for, for marriage. And so you know how this is. But especially on that day, so much preparation. I'm looking out at at a couple right now who, who just experienced this. And it's a joyous thing to be a part of. But a bride does so much work to make herself ready for the wedding day, doesn't she? And so too we, as the bride of Christ, are to spend our time on this earth, among other things, making ourselves ready to meet our Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is the husband to the church. So here we have an emphasis upon our responsibility, but notice how after that we are protected from thinking that we can in any way save ourselves or prepare ourselves for salvation. We are told in verse 8 that it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So why is the bride able to make herself ready, according to this text here? Why is she able to do that? She does not have the resources uh, herself. They do not come from her. But instead, her husband Christ, and indeed God, has granted her the ability to make herself herself ready. He has granted her all that she needs. He has given it to her. He has has richly provided her with all that she needs to make herself ready for Uh, the wedding day. Indeed, this is consistent with what all the scriptures have to say concerning our salvation. Why is it that we have salvation? How is it that we have come to faith in Christ? We must say above all, it is by the grace of God alone. He has permitted it. He indeed has ordained it. He has decreed it from eternity past. And He is the one who does the work ultimately drawing sinners to Himself, making them able to believe. This we must always profess as being true, but also this must be said, men and women must believe. They must be urged to repent, to turn from sin, and to look to Christ. Indeed, we must persevere in the faith and go on believing until the very end. Both of these truths are being communicated here in Revelation chapter 19. Brothers and sisters, what should we do in response to these things that we have heard? 
the application must be this. We are to worship God in this world. We're to do so faithfully. We're to do so well. We're to do so until the very end. We're to worship God individually, aren't we? And by this, I I would ask the question, may He have your heart? Does He have your heart? Does Christ own your heart? Does God own your heart? Is He your treasure, your supreme treasure? Do you look to Him and say, He alone is worthy to receive praise? He alone is worthy to receive my worship Do we say that from the heart? Do we trust in Him daily, individually? Do we hope in Him? Do we find our pleasure in Him? And so I do, as your pastor, want to today urge you to worship God and to think very carefully about that question individually. Am I worshiping God in my private life? Am I worshiping God from my heart? Does my life reflect the fact that God is my greatest treasure and that I am hoping in Him and in Him alone? Or are you worshiping the things of this world, and in fact guilty of idolatry. We should give Him glory with our mouths. We should pray to Him. We should give Him thanks always. We should testify to His goodness. We should obey Him in all that we do. We should not do that which He has forbidden. We should do that which He has commanded. We should have His Word as the lamp which illuminates our path and directs our steps. This is what it looks like for someone to give worship to God individually. God is supreme to them, and nothing else is even close in their mind and in their heart. We're to worship God also in families. That is my prayer, brothers and sisters, for us as a church, that as we gather together corporately, the thing that would be provoked is that we would leave this place to worship God, not just for this small period of time, but that we would go back into our homes and worship Him there in obedience, and that we would worship Him individually from the heart. We also must truly value corporate worship with the church, for the Word of God does command it. We are to keep the Lord's Day Sabbath. We're to rest from our worldly employments and our worldly recreations. We're to put it away, and we are to worship God as He has ordained, as He has commanded in the Holy Scriptures. I hope that you are worshiping God and not other things. Let's begin there. But once we have decided that we are going to worship God by the grace of God, we must ask the question, am I worshiping Him aright? How does He want to be worshipped? How has He commanded that we worship Him? And the Scriptures do also reveal that. And one of the things that we are to do is we are to gather together on the Lord's Day Sabbath. We are to rest from worldly employment and worldly recreation. And we are to give this day, the whole day, to the worship of God. We should not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. But we must come and worship God with the church as God's word does describe. And when we are here, we are to engage in the means of grace that God has given to us from the heart. It is so easy to come and to go through the motions, isn't it? To just kind of sing and here you are on verse number whatever and you realize you're not even thinking about the things that you're singing. And then prayers are being offered up and, and you're not thinking about what's being prayed, but you're, you're drifting in your thoughts. And here the Lord's Supper is being served and you're not thinking about what is represented here. You're not confessing your sins as you should. And even during the preaching, right, your mind wanders. 
how, how good it would be for us, brothers and sisters, and how right and honoring to God it is for us to come on the Lord's Day to gather with the church and to engage in these simple and ordinary means of grace, thoughtfully and from the heart. I do believe that God will bless you as you do that, and I also believe that God is most honored when we worship in, in that way. Oh, that we would make much of this day, brothers and sisters. Our lives are busy and they are hectic, I think. And that is okay. I think it is right that we are busy and that we do work hard. But we've been given a gift here, the Lord's Day Sabbath. And if we would only obey God in the keeping of this Sabbath and really approach this day intentionally and with great joy and with anticipation, how good it would be for our souls to do this. And how honoring to God it is to worship Him as He has ordained in His holy word. And then lastly, I'll say this, that we must worship God only through faith in Jesus the Christ, for there is no other way. Uh, This is what the scriptures reveal most clearly, that because of our sin, we are alienated from God. We are not able to worship Him aright because of our sin and our alienation from Him. We are at hostility with Him. We are children of wrath because of our sin. But God in His mercy has provided a Savior for us, a mediator, a go-between, someone who has paid for sin, and it is through Him, Christ Jesus our Lord, that we are able to come to God the Father and to offer Him the worship that He so rightly deserves. And so it may may it be true of all of us who are here in this room that we have faith in Christ, that we are trusting in Him alone, and our prayer is that God would indeed make us more faithful in our worship so that we would give Him the worship that He deserves as we live in this world, never worshiping the things of this world instead. Let's go to prayer. Almighty God, we thank You for Your love for us. You are our Creator, and because of that, You deserve our worship. More than that, You are our Redeemer. Because of our sin, Lord, You, in Your grace and mercy, provided a Savior for us. How much more, then, are You worthy to receive worship from us? Lord, I pray that you would draw it out from us corporately, that you would draw it out from us in families, draw it out from us individually. Lord, may you own our heart. May you be supreme to each one of us, Lord. May we treasure you above all else. May we value you above all else. May we trust in you and nothing else. God, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word where these things are revealed. May we have faith in it. Help myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ today to run from the things of this world, to see them for what they are, and to run to you through faith in Jesus the Christ. It's in His name that we say these things. Amen.